0: everyone and welcome to know the show our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time my name is michael fling i am the artistic associate at Goodspeed musicals not my name is why i do that what it is it's a panel <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? honestly leave it in um i'm michael fling the artistic associate at good musicals um and i'm thrilled to be joined uh by the woman I'd be drawn back to if I decided to become young and be a baseball player, Annika Chapin, Signature Theaters, uh, Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika.
1: Hi, Michael. I'll try not to be offended that you didn't go for it. the sexiest woman in through space and time.
0: Through space and time from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, but let's
1: be honest. Let's be honest. I <laughs> I was in a comedy troupe in college. I I know if I'm there's sexy lady or mom. And- well, and
0: I was like, you know what the I was like, I was flirting with maybe doing like, you know, the, the person I wish was a Washington Senator, Annika Chapin. That would have been really strong, but for whatever reason, I was like, maybe it won't land. Yeah. Anyway, here we are. Um, how are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm fine. I'm excited to dive into this, this show that to be honest, I don't know super, I didn't know super well. So I am probably like quite a bit of our audience in terms of getting to know it. But why don't you remind us of the clue about which musical we'll be getting to know?
1: Well, I believe the clue I gave was that this was the show which caused a titanic, iconic Broadway pairing to happen. A a duo that looms large over Broadway romances and Broadway history, etc., um, of course, I'm talking about Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon, who met while they were both working on Damn Yankees, the show that we're going to talk about today.
0: And um, then, and famously, like, had an affair during it. Like, he was married to another woman, and then this kind of, like, began their affair slash creative relationship. Yeah. For more on that, you can watch FX's Fosse-Verdon. Um, I forgot about that part of it until I was looking into the, like, reading the, stuff about, like, how it came to be and all the stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, he was, like, fully married to someone else.
1: Scandalous being, that guy.
0: He's, you know, a a creative genius, as they like to say, which means he can do lots of really bad things. (laughs) We've
1: we've forgiven him for many. (laughs) Many Uh, a (laughs) foeble.
0: Diving into Damn Yankees with a book by Douglas Wallop and George Abbott, Music and lyrics by Jerry Ross and Richard Adler, and based on the novel *The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant* by Douglas Wallop. So that will bring us to the speed test.
2: Hudson's floor x doesn't matter. matter
0: Hudson's floor doesn't matter. matter. Hudson's
2: floor doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Hudson's floor doesn't, matter. Matter, Hudson's 4X doesn't matter.
0: matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Doing *The Yankees* in less than sixty in sixty seconds or less, I guess.
1: I think you are going to have a, a bit of a tough time with this, but not. But honestly. Well, I'm very curious to see how you do on this. Yeah, I this
0: I, it's like I don't feel. I, yeah, we'll see. We'll see because I, I'm gonna, I'm sure I'm gonna fuck up some character names. So, bear I mean, with I, I
1: also, I will say, it, since we're talking about the original production of yes. this, the original script, uh, I know this show very well. I've worked on this show. Uh, there's parts of this plot I can't fully say i understand so
0: definitely i would say a candidate for the dramaturgy of forgetting trademark Uh, yes Monica chapin
1: (laughs) yes i think i think it'll be very interesting to see all right okay so let's let's get going uh smoky rocky sohovic go
0: okay so um we have the older like it's older guy who's obsessed with um the washington senators a terrible baseball team who always um like lose the pennant the like you know, the division championship or whatever to the Yankees, or can never beat the Yankees, his long suffering wife, um, who wishes that he would do, you know, anything except for like sit at at home and watch this baseball television. So anyway, the devil comes to him and he's like, Hey, um, Applegate comes to him, uh, AKA the devil. And he's like, Hey, I can make you young and really like a good baseball player. And then you can help the senators like win a pennant. And he's like, yeah, great. I'll do it. So he becomes magically young Joe Hardy. um, And then he goes, um, and gets on to the Washington Center's team, kind of by single-handedly like being really good, um, makes them pretty good, and like a national celebrity. Then this reporter Gloria is like, "Hey, I don't think you're real because you're not actually from Hannibal Moe." And then everything kind of falls apart. He gets tempted by Lola, who is like the devil's assistant. That's a minute.
1: That's a minute.
0: Tough, yeah. um, but I mean, it's almost there. The last almost. is like he then like you know has like an escape clause that he's gonna like, get out of this like transformation and then like that's like right as like last game of the season essentially.
1: Yeah, things get he trans- a little weird at some point. I think it's fair with, to
0: say. He gets, he gets put on trial for the fact that he's like maybe Shifty McCoy and then he manages to like catch that he gets transformed mid game or like mid play really like the last play of the game. And he still like makes the play and turns back into um you know original excuse me original joe and uh he's in love with his wife who he also weirdly was like living with when he was young hot joe hardy um yeah, yeah. so that's another sure. seconds i spent way too much time talking about the fact like the setup for the plot <laughs> I spent half the time being like yeah so the senators suck
1: <laughs> well but you kind of need to know that i mean like that's the thing it's like it's in many ways it's a very simple plot because it's a classic faustian bargain um but in lots of other ways, it's an oddly complex plot because they, the the they don't really like. I don't know. I think I think there's a lot in this show, and I think it kind of ultimately works despite its weirdness. But like, there is a little bit of a strange uh, lack of tension that you can feel them sort of scrambling to fix at some point.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, and as we unpack. You know the journey of how it came to be and whatnot i think some of that was revealing itself i think in just how it was developed and mm-hmm. the personalities involved but it is a i don't know it's a peculiar little piece to me um it and is not having done it not knowing it i think um is probably part of it but certainly something that you know a lot of people still do and and produce and
1: yeah and uh, i Full disclosure, I part of why I love this show so much. Um, although I did see the the revival that was, I think, what nineteen
0: ninety four. Yes. Um. Apparently, the very controversial revival, I didn't know until I was looking into all of this.
1: Yeah, they made a bunch of changes, but um, I also worked on it in encores with like a cast that is pretty impeccable. I mean, it's hard not to like think of those people. Sean Hayes was Applegate. Cheyenne Jackson was Young Joe. Um. Uh, Jane Krakowski was Lola. Like, it was just a really like amazing cast. And you know, I gotta say, it worked. Like, I think this is one of those shows where uh there's like, yes, the plot is weird. Yes, the script has some big old holes in it. We're like, I'm sorry, what? But like, man if you get good people in it with with the dancing and the score and that, like you just forgive it for all the weirdness you're like sure whatever there's a hearing at 10 p.m on the night before the i'm like that's a normal on, thing that on happens page, on
0: page 95 there's 30 minutes till midnight and then on page or yeah like page 95 there's 30 minutes to midnight and then on page 97 suddenly there's only five minutes till midnight there's,
1: <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff and you're the whole sh- and i my favorite is too, like gloria like when applegate's like oh shifty mccoy and then gloria's like what and then she like leaves and then three minutes later it's like there's an extra accusing him of being shifty mccoy and i'm like well <laughs> this is a, that is a fast-moving n- newspaper
0: it is peculiar um but also i you know the only thing i can say about the encores of it all i did not see that on i was um but a wee child at the time or at least like not i was i was not really i mean i was a teenager i guess and i actually came to new york i was in new york the week of that encores and with my uncles and my sister and i really wanted i was like the thing i wanted to see was damn yankees at encores which should tell you everything (laughs) about what my digest like what i was suggesting and the nerd that i was in whatever like 2007 2008 whatever year that was um, and instead, uh, we went and saw um, Megan Mullally and Young Frankenstein, um, a choice I don't necessarily regret. But my uncles were like, you don't want to go see Damien. Like, no, you don't want to see that. Let's go to Broadway. And I was like, but Dan Yankees, Sean Hayes, Jane Krakowski, Shyan Jackson. <laughs> um, but I didn't get to see it. So sad. R.I.P. Yeah. It was
1: it was pretty good. And I will say, I think my other teaser was that it was there was one of my favorite bits that I've ever yes. seen on a stage. Yes, yes. I don't have to say for my favorite things because now that I teased it, I feel like I got to say it in the, in the clue part, which was basically that um, Sean Hayes, who of course played Applegate and is an extraordinarily funny person and John Rando who directed it, who directed Town* and many other things is an extraordinarily funny director. Um, and Sean Hayes is a very good pianist. He plays the piano very, very well as he's now done in um Goodnight Oscar. Is that the name of that?
0: Yes. Oh, good Night Oscar. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so when he did those were the good old days, um, he played the piano at it and the, and the audience was not expecting that. And so it was a very funny thing. And he and Rob Berman, the music director, worked out a whole thing for it. And it was very funny. And you could t- and the audience did not know what to what Like you could tell. You could see them adjusting to the fact that he was playing the piano. And at some point he he started to ad lib like it's really me because like you could feel the audience not knowing if it was a, a bit Anyway, so the, the gag that I loved was that, you know, he's si- sitting at the piano, he's singing this whole song, and then he finishes it, the big sparkle curtain comes down, because every John Randall show needs some sort of sparkle curtain, and I deeply respect that. Um, and then Sean came out from in one from the wings with a violin, and he put it up to his chin, and the audience, you could feel them being like, What? He just played the piano throughout this whole number. Oh, my God. Now he's going to play the violin for the encore. And he starts with for the reprise, which is it was. And on the through on the absolutely it was absolutely thrilling, I think was the line. He just takes the violin and goes, it was and puts the bow up against it and then tosses the thing without looking into the into the wings. So it was just like it was just a gag it was just a tease it was so funny and perfect and just great so I I really will always appreciate that production for that moment among many others because it was it was really fun
0: I love that um and uh I Sean Hayes is I'm a if you couldn't tell huge Will and Grace person um so between Sean Hayes and Megan Mullally I was living like I but I yeah that's brilliant. I love that. I love Sean Hayes. Thanks I am very Stan. good. Sean Hayes, Stan. He actually. am yeah. I, I, I love him. All right. So that will bring us to why God? Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about this show's big idea. What is the thing the authors want to say, and what's the theme that's really propelling the story? So, I, you know, I, I'm perhaps stealing how how you what you are going to say. I think the only thing that's really like propelling the story forward is this like an idea of like true love transcends other it transcends being a hero. It transcends everything else. Like he and his wife love each other. And that really is like the heartbeat of the, of the show, certainly of, of Joe's trajectory as a character. Um, and it's, it's that very, you know, I guess sentimental thing that a lot of old musicals explore. It is basically just doing that. I don't necessarily know that there's something that connects all of the characters, maybe some kind of sense of recognition and or being seen, I guess. If you really wanted to write, I'll write my master's thesis about how damn Yankee's about is about being really seen. Um, which, you know, actually is not a bad take, to be honest, I think. But Annika, what do you think is as this show's why?
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think the show ultimately comes down on the sort of like you should appreciate the people you love. And that's certainly Joe's arc of, uh, you know, I I thought that baseball was more important than this woman that I never really saw as being the true thing of value in my life. Um, Do I think that there's some more interesting stuff that could be explored within that? Sure. Does it feel like there's a version of the script in which, uh, Meg and Young Joe actually sort of have a little
0: thing. Because it yes.
1: it does when you when you do the show, it does feel like they are falling in love in a way, which is kind of a very interesting dramatic question about like what happens when, you know, he is himself, but he's not himself and she's kind of having and I'm sure they didn't do that because it's a little bit scandalous, um, for the time to have like an older woman having an affair with a younger man, which would be an affair for her. It would be cheating. Right on her husband, not knowing that it was her husband. So I'm sure that's a little more complicated, but now I'm like, "Hmm." and also like the show also, I think has a bit of a temptation problem, which is that he like declares pretty early on, like, Nope, I didn't realize, you know, like he, the ending is is revealed very early where there's not a lot of like, is he going to, is he going to stay with the senators? Or is he going to go back to Meg? Like, I feel like under normal circumstances, that's kind of one of the questions that is driving the plot um and they don't seem to want to go with that as a source of tension so instead they kind of have to create all this weird stuff about like shifting mccoy and like is he gonna win you know and, th- and then he kind of gets his cake and eats it too right um, so anyway but but yes i think the the heart of it is um that relationship and like appreciation. But I, I think, I mean, I guess if there's one word that I could say that unites this sort of plot, it's it's a little bit devotion. Um because I, I think the way that the love of baseball is portrayed is is also a a love in itself, you know, and it's um I love that Sister and Doris, these kind of strange characters who exist in this show for comedy are, are also like mass. You know, you see all these different versions of like like there's a lot of things and and people that um are truly loved in this show in very different ways so that's that's kind of what i would say is like devotion and loyalty and love are all kind of um wrapped up in a big old bow in various ways in this show
0: so with that annika why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of damn yankees we can
1: All right. Well, I was torn on this one because I really wanted to talk about Faustian bargains because I am a nerd and I love Faustian bargains and they pop up all sorts of places. And that is, of course, the sort of deal with the devil um, that is made. It's a it's a classic story trope. Um, but I decided that I'm not going to talk about Faustian bargains in this particular section. Um, I I'm sure I will find an excuse to do that in some future show
0: you already have because we talked about it in little shop of horrors so thank go, you go i thought i had I was like, go listen to that go listen to that episode if you want to hear about faustian bargains
1: go listen to that i was thinking i was like i bet i i feel like i did i was gonna text you like did i okay anyway we love, right. it. We
0: love an october episode where we talk about faustian bargains
2: <laughs>
1: i mean i don't want to say i'm a broken record but like man also i'd just like to note that my son's name is marlo there you go Um, and there it is and for those who don't get that reference Christopher Marlowe did write Faust so um there you go uh okay great so I'm not going to talk about Faustian bargains again
0: (laughs) so funny we're getting to that point we're getting to that point we've done a lot of shows we are we are good
1: yeah so this is the second Faustian bargain show we're doing um instead I'm going to talk about uh a person who is one of the writers on this show uh, the director of this show, a massive, massive figure in the theater. And that is George Abbott. Um, which it's funny because George Abbott, when you read about him, his influence on Broadway is I mean, Titanic. It's like literally, i I read somewhere that he was like he he's one of the most important and admired men in the history of Broadway. Some have said that he was the history of Broadway. Like, you you see things like that that are so effusive and huge, and it's kind of interesting because I don't feel like his is one of the names that has really survived um, as much as other people as being, like, this this massive, 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 massive guy. Um, Anyway, so let's talk about George Abbott. Um, So as I said, he was a theater director. He was also a producer. He was a playwright. He was a screenwriter. He was a script doctor who was called in to fix other scripts. He was a film director. He was a film producer. Um, it. He was also an actor. That doesn't even include that he was an actor at one point. I mean, he did everything. Like, actually writing this up and doing this research was more a, a task of erasing things and, like, not trying to pick and choose amongst the many many things he did because his career spanned more than 9 decades um he died when he was 107 years old and he was working until he died <laughs> like, and he famously was constantly working so part of the reason that he's so big in theater is because he literally worked on hundreds of shows he had a hand in 131 Broadway shows and he had 40 films to his credit as a screenwriter director or producer including all quiet on the western fun front which he won oscars for the fall guy film adaptations of his broadway hits like he did everything he He's was amazing,
0: amazingly prolific
1: amazingly prolific yeah um so just to bring it back a little bit to his history he was born in 1887 which is kind of wild to think that you know he died in the 90s and he was born in 1887 um which which again is like also Many, many years before any of the shows that we consider true musicals were written. He was old when that happened.
0: Right, yeah. I
1: mean, it's the longevity. Okay. Um, He grew up in Salamanca in upstate New York, where his father was the mayor, again, not a particularly artistic family. Um, And he wasn't a very good student. But the family moved to Wyoming, where he was a ranch hand for a time. So he was kind of doing this very other outdoorsy cowboy stuff.
0: Wyoming, um, I had no idea.
1: I know, isn't that interesting? That's
0: so interesting. Okay, yeah. sorry, i us stop interrupting. That's fascinating. No, no, please
1: <laughs> interrupt away. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. He was like a bad student in Wyoming, and and like being a messenger for Western Union and a ranch hand. You know, it's I mean, it's a really not the beginning you would imagine for someone who was going to be this guy. Um, But then the family moved back east. And when he was sort of a teenager, you can start to see that he was drawn to theater. Um, They lived close enough to Buffalo that he could take the train into Buffalo and see theater. And then he went to the University of Rochester. He started to write plays. And then he went to Harvard to study playwriting. And a few of his plays like started to win little awards and be produced. And that was kind of the first thing that he was doing. However, although he was writing plays, he really started working as an actor and he specialized in playing cowboys, which was something he actually had been. Um, but that was something he sort of gave up when his first play was produced on Broadway. And he really started just writing, 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 writing. He collaborated with a lot of other writers. He also wrote alone. He started, I mean, at, even at this point, he moved tirelessly from one project to another. Um, and he would just like, crank them out like that was he just it didn't matter if they were hits it didn't matter if they weren't he just would have one thing lined up as soon as he finished the, the thing before um, and that is again something that really defined him for his entire life so he was writing scripts and screenplays um, they were doing well they were being produced they were relatively successful on both fronts Um, And then he started directing as well as producing, because obviously being successful as a script writer and a screenplay writer was not enough. Um, And then uh, like some other famous uh, Broadway figures who wore several hats, um, he really was a director and a producer on the shows that he worked on from from that moment on. He would he would usually do both. Um, And he worked with many, many, many of the luminaries of the theater world at this time he worked with rogers and hammerstein and on your toes um boys from syracuse Uh, he worked with betty comden adolph green leonard bernstein and jerome robbins on on the town as we talked about in that episode a bit he collaborated with jerome robbins a few times on several shows um he just directed various shows um including like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and then he would be doing the film adaptations of a, a few of these different uh shows and films. Again, it's just a massive list of projects. So uh I'm just gonna say go look it up because it's really <laughs> I like, couldn't even pick out a handful. There's a ton. Um and specifically he introduced the fast-paced tightly integrated style um that influenced a lot of performers and especially directors like Jerome Robbins, Bob Fossey and Hal Prince, all of whom he worked with at some point. Um, and he was he was pretty known as a character as well. He was, uh, as I said, famously productive, but he was also like quite a character. He Everybody called him Mr. Abbott and he was famously abstemious um, and by his own admission, puritanical, exacting and intolerant. He always wore a tie. He never took his tie off. He worked until he was tired and then he went to bed. He barely drank anything and he ate three square meals a day and he really didn't say more than necessary. So this is very kind of different in Broadway where you have people like Bob Fosse who are like partying and, you know, there's sort of this idea that uh, the figures in Broadway are all like, you know, extravagant in some way. He was definitely not. He was really, really serious about his work. He does not sound like the most fun guy in the history of the world. And he just was constantly, constantly, um, being very serious about the work that he did. And he expected a similar work ethic and a lack of fuss from the actors he worked with and the people around him. Um, There's one story about an actor asking him, what's my motivation? And uh, Abbott replying, your job, (laughs) which I love. Because he really didn't like method acting or any of this sort of like, uh, you know, be the character, feel the character. He just didn't have a lot of patience for anything that wasn't like, do the work, um, let's get on with it. Uh, As I said, he lived to be 107 and he was working up until he died uh, on revisions to the pajama game, another show of his. Um, He also had attended the opening night of the 1994 revival of Damn Yankees and he was given a standing ovation and apparently somebody overheard him saying to a friend, there must be someone important here. So I think even though at that point he had won basically every award is possible to win. He had a Pulitzer prize. He had an Oscar. He had many, many Tonys. Um, He had a Kennedy center honor. Like he has a, he had a theater named after him, which unfortunately was torn down in the seventies, but he still has a street corner in Broadway. Like he really was massively influential and massively important. But even until the end of his life, he was very um, humble and just felt like if you put the work in, then you will get the work done. And that, is kind of amazing so anyway george Abbott, broadway legend
0: well and i heard too i heard i read as i was looking into it that he was also responsible for some of the rewrites in the 94 revival like he did even though jack o'brien i think gets the credit for it like in the literal sense um i think george abbott still was like there and taking notes and doing things like actively working which is yeah 107 like 107 That's
1: 107 and he was like also It wasn't like he was a doddering old 107 Like right. there's lots of stories about it. He was like dancing And golfing and he was like Very active and yeah He was doing I mean as, as I said he was doing Rewrites on the pajama game like he wasn't He was, he was really working And that's kind of remarkable too like it, It's not usual I think for someone who is responsible for The original form of Something to be doing rewrites on it literally decades later usually there's kind of a sense of like okay a, a newer voice or a fresher voice will come in and take another crack at it but he was well, and still, also to think, going. You know,
0: like you said like he was like 70 when he did it the first time
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> not many 70 year olds you know are like getting to rewrite something 40 years later
1: yeah that's true I mean that is true it's like you you think of everybody being so young when they're working on these shows but he he was uh, not, not a man
0: he was no. not He's not. And that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So uh, so really, the 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 germination of Damn Yankees happened after the massive success that was the Pajama Game, um, which uh, an and agent from William Morris um, brought the book The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant to the attention of George Abbott. Um, who agreed to help make it into a musical provided that the producing team behind the pajama game uh, which of course featured Hal Prince um, would be the ones to produce it and so um, they assembled basically the the team and the as we said the clue like the the major thing was like okay well Lola's going to be like a dancing role we should get um, they had talked about like Mitzi Gaynor. They talked about something different people, but it was like, Oh no, 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 We really should get this. Like, you know, at that point, like, uh, had just kind of popped off dancing comedian, um, Gwen Verdon for the role of Lola. Um, cause she had just like really like stolen scenes in can can, I think at that point, she was like just starting to really come into her own as a Broadway star. Um, and then the choreographer Bob Fossey, who had also choreographed the pajama game, was like, well, I want to audition her first. Uh, and that is then the first meeting they like work on um whatever Lola wants, I believe was the number they actually like started working on together and they realized that just creatively they were very much um in line with each other and she wanted to be good for him and he was pushed by her and it was a very like good um, I guess symbiotic kind of creative partnership in a lot of ways. Um, Ooh,
1: a seduction number and a real life seduction. You know, it's
0: working on many levels, which is why, you know, FX <laughs> decided to uh to do something with it. So um shout out to Fossi Burton if you haven't watched it. It it's a it is a really I I actually hadn't watched it when I was originally on. I watched it when I had COVID um a couple of years ago and I was like, this is great. I absolutely it is, it. It's fantastic.
1: It is very very good. Not Shall really like Tommy
0: Kill. I was going to say not, I'm not sticking my neck out there by saying that, but it is very very good. Yeah. So, um they get into rehearsal. I mean again, the the fact that they basically wrote the show like in a year um and not even really, like it just kind of came together. The original company had 83 people in it apparently and uh they 83
1: were people 83 people.
0: That's what I read, 83 people. And so um, they got to show up and running in like two weeks in terms of like rehearsal, they were hurt like two weeks and they were in running shape. Um, and that was mainly because George Abbott was a big believer in leaving a lot up to audience reaction. So the development process for him was like, okay, get it up very quickly, kind of slap dash and figure it out and then put it in front of people and start to really tinker with it. So They go out, they do their out-of-town tryout in New Haven. Um, Fosse had created this big end-of-act-one ballet that was, like, essentially a game of musical chairs that involved the Yankees mascot, which was a gorilla. I don't really know why the Yankees mascot was a gorilla or if that is actually what it was at the time. It seems a little weird to me, but, you know the gorilla motif of Fosse's life, I guess um you know, not <laughs> between that and uh, if you could see it through my eyes interesting. So involving a gorilla, very weird. And um Hal Prince wanted to cut it um and saying it didn't work with the pacing of the show, Fosse really passionately disagreed um and actually like didn't get along with Hal Prince like thought Hal Prince didn't like him like it didn't was like very distrustful of all producer types um how prince insists that that was not the case and he could never convince Fosse that he didn't hate him um but so prince let it like you know it was like okay we'll leave it like don't you don't have to change anything and like we'll let it play in front of an audience and then and we'll let the audience decide um and the audiences did not like it so then there's a a story that like they go back to the hotel and um prince and um the other producers, um, Brisson and Griffith, I don't remember their first names, but Brisson and Griffith and, um, how Hal- and George Abbott are like in what, in, I think Abbott's hotel room, like talking about the things they need to change and Halpern's like school. So we're going to like cut the, cut the ballet number. Da-da-da-da-da. And Fosse hears that through the wall because he's on the other, like in the room with the ad- adjoining wall and like has like, a conniption fit being like I heard what you said and you're speaking poorly about me behind my back and blah, blah 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 and Hal Prince was like no 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 that was not the it was not we were just talking about the show in notes like and trying to gather it together and think about what we wanted. Um but Fossi like lays into him in his hotel room for like ever um which at then point at one point his like sick wife who was with him was like Bob stop it's enough and like I guess he kind of cooled down. So he then agreed to cut the number and it was replaced with "Who's Got the Pain," which they put together uh, in about two hours. Um, an iconic, an iconic dance that really came together in about two hours.
1: An iconic dance that is iconic and also makes absolutely no sense in the, sense. Yeah, that whole that whole end of Act One is really a fever dream. But we can talk about that later. Yeah, I was
0: going to say like, and so then so they go to Boston, um, and the show is constantly changing, um, including the addition of the song "A Little Brain's a Little Talent" for Lola. Um, and just like continually making her part even bigger because when was just electric with audiences, which when you think about George Abbott wanting to develop it in front of an audience, like it completely makes sense that like, this was the way it was fated to be. Um, but, uh, Prince said in his, one of his memoirs or his memoirs since occasion, um, that like during the preview process and and whatnot of, um, Jamie and Keyes, like they lost, they jettisoned about a third of the score, uh which is interesting so it comes into new york it gets nice reviews um but prince and griffith thought that the show still needed to work like it was a somewhat tepid review like tepid review. it was warm nice but not like oh you gotta go see it's the biggest hit in town kind of reviews um and so the that morning like after they opened um they were like on the phone and trying to figure out they're like i think the show still needs work but how are we going to tell george and blah 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 and so they called him at like eight a.m. and Abbott agreed. They like met for breakfast at a diner and talked about the things they wanted to do. And then between the three of them, because they couldn't, it was like early enough they couldn't get it in touch with like stage management. They like between the three of them called the entire company, I guess, of 83 people and called a rehearsal for that afternoon. Um, where um They cut a number from the show, moved one number from act two to act one. I don't know what numbers it was. I didn't really get into the weeds of trying to figure out what they actually changed. But they cut a number. They moved one number from act two to act one and changed the ending so that Lola wasn't turned into like an old hag um, because audiences didn't seem to be responding to that. And ultimately, they reduced the runtime of the show by about 20 minutes um, through all all the various changes they made um and the other major shift after opening which is also just just so people know and i think we've talked about this it is very rare for a show to go back into rehearsal and change once it has opened particularly like the day after it has opened opened that is very not traditional so i i think it's interesting that this show did have that kind of radical change that then made the show that much better um And the other big thing that changed was um, the marketing of the show really shifted. So the original like artwork for the show was um, when Verdon in like a baseball jersey um, and I guess just tights or like a very like, you know, slimming kind of like revealing of her leg and acting posing a little like coily um, in her little baseball jersey um, against like a ballpark green background. Um, And so they decided to completely turn it on its head. Flip the green to red, and then put her in her triumphant pose um, from whatever Lola wants in her corset um, against that bright red backdrop, and they really like did a so it's it, it's a very like 180 shift in the marketing um, that really transforms the run of the show, and like after that happened, like they had lines around the block and all the things, um, so and then went on to win Best Musical and and a lot of accolades in when it first ran. Um, and I think to this day, um, it's the, you know, Adler and Ross, the the writers um, are the only like writers to win back to back years, like best musical at the Tonys, um, I think might be wrong on that, but I think they are. And then sadly, um, Ross died um, at 29 of complications of pneumonia, not too long after um, Dan Yankees um, opened. So we don't really know what would have happened with the two of them as um, partners or where that, what else they would have created and made. Um, so definitely a gone too soon um, situation. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how it all kind of came to be.
1: Yeah, that's, it's such an interesting story. And I, I just, I love the bit about the marketing changing and totally changing the, the whole shape of the show. And it's funny too, because I feel like you do think of this show and think of it as being like oh whatever lola wants like that's yeah that. but when you when you read the script like it makes sense that they would have ha- they felt like they had to bump lola up a little bit because she really doesn't play all that big a part in the show after that that main section in the main, in the beginning and, and so the fact that it's like i don't know i guess well, even that that, like, old oldest time
0: even that whatever lola wants is not like the first song she sings like no that, it isn't you no know it is like because it is the song that like defines our character in a lot of ways and it's actually not what um is set up to do which is just yeah it is and it speaks I think to the show-stopping kind of nature of like Gwen Verdon as a performer
1: yeah I think it does I mean I feel like any any of those examples in history where it's like and a star was well she was already doing very well at that point but like when you when you have a star like that who's just dominating you you have to work with it and give her a showcase a little bit um and then we should also mention that in 1958 it was made into a film um directed by george abbott and uh screenplay by abbott because he had adapted his his own show and i i feel like the movie is pretty good
0: it's i so i actually watched it um oh did you i did i had not seen it before and i watched it it is a pretty faithful adaptation um yeah when you look into like the fun facts about the movie um Tab Hunter who was like the only person of the original Broadway cast or uh, the only person who was not in the original Broadway cast who is like in the movie in a significant role um basically was like very frustrated throughout the making of the movie because Abbott just kind of wanted to recreate what they had done on Broadway mm. on film. Um, and so it was not a fun process for him <clears throat> and um and there are lots of, you know, like Gwen Verdon was nervous about being on camera and wanted, Fossey there, and Fossey to protect her, and all these things, and so there was a lot. There was tension surrounding it, but generally, I think a relatively faithful. I make some changes, um, like to two things, it makes some changes, but generally, I think the story about like George Abbott wanting to keep it, uh, like a record of what it was, um, on on stage, I think is largely true. Um, Yeah, and then Um, ninety four revival, as we talked about that, um was had there again sorry revival with victor garber as applegate and bb new earth as lola um and uh really jared and,
1: emick.
0: and yeah jared emick as um <clears throat> young joe hardy who won a tony right for, for that. So. um and uh and i guess makes a lot of change i mean it does make a lot yeah. of yeah i did not see it i did not see it i don't and they don't let you do it um but a lot of songs like change who are not a lot of songs, but at least like some of the songs become whatever. Um, this, the two lost souls. Two lost souls. Yeah. I was like, I'm losing the name of the song, but instead of becoming is instead of it being Joe and Lola becomes Applegate and Lola. um, And lots of, lots of tweaks to the, to the material.
1: Yeah. And then I feel like this is also one that is, um, always on the list like guys and dolls where it's like oh they're gonna remake it and it's gonna be you know jim carrey and it's gonna be jake gyllenhaal yeah,
0: and right all these people so which you know. it could stand i mean as you will get to in problem like maria it would probably be interesting to do something with it like to really kind of actually make a definitive version there's also the other the weird other version and the, i shouldn't say weird but there was there was a version that was done a few times um in like the mid 2010s um Joe DiPietro um did a new book that uh, instead of it being the Washington Senators um it was the Boston Red Sox um yes um Goodspeed produced it um another company produced it prior to us so it is I don't think it's like necessarily Goodspeed born but we did that version um yeah and I don't famously
1: losing team
0: yeah famously uh, to the Yankees too like the like really like actual bloodthirsty like rivalry between the Yankees and the Red Sox um and so and I think played to pretty much success but um you you're not really allowed to do it I think um in terms of licensing you're not allowed to do it um so yeah it's an interesting show and it's like continued trajectory and and changes and things
1: yeah it is and it's always funny because I feel like there's like references to real things in it in a way that I'm like huh, like Shoeless Joe Jackson was a real person um, so I'm like okay so they're they're pulling from that for this? okay
2: sure
0: it's like yeah you know, I think it's like it, it obviously was like geared toward the audience of 1955 you know and like it's like a camp in a way for that audience but whether or not it stays that way I think for a modern audience is I don't know if it translates that way but it's an interesting, interesting little show that of course is produced in high schools all over. And um there was a community theater that I did stuff with when I was a kid who the you know every community theater struggles to like get guys, and the only time they didn't struggle to find guys to audition was when they decided to do Dan Yankees, which I that, was
1: That is that is interesting.
0: So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside whatever Lola wants?
2: What's inside?
1: Let's talk about what is arguably the most famous number from this show, whatever Lola wants. It's been covered by many, many people. it's it's a great, great number. It's sexy, it's seductive. it's powerful. It's super, super fun. um it was obviously big Gwen Verdon's big number, one of one of a few. and it's a great song. So it's it's what I wanted to talk about because also I think it's like kind of a fascinating song in that it. I think reveals a little bit more about Lola than maybe it even intends to. Um, so context, uh, should you need it, basically Applegate has become worried that Joe is spending too much time with his wife. And he calls in Lola, this quasi immortal seductress who has bragged in her first number about all the men in history that she's effectively seduces. seduced. She's not worried about seducing Joe. Um, and she's going to come in and basically take his attention away from Meg and allow Applegate to have another tool to get Joe to, to stick with the deal. Um, Applegate will get his soul. So literally the most seductive woman in the world, in existence at this moment in time, is Lola. And they've had a scene in the locker room where Lola is being presented as a uh, senorita lolita banana which is completely ridiculous and uh problematic we'll talk about that um and she's kind of done a a rapid fire variety of flirtation techniques um with joe but she's come on pretty strong although she's also played a kind of like oh she's just a, a fan she's just a girl you know um kind of coquettish and then this is the song that she sings We will talk about that too, the contradiction in in this sort of scene and song. Um, And first of all, one thing that I found really, really fascinating when I was doing some research into this song, apparently the phrase, whatever Lola wants, Lola gets, was not coined by this song. Now, this is a little fuzzy. I wanted a little bit more support for this statement. But there were some references online to the fact that this phrase referred to a woman named Lola Montez, who is, I have to say, extremely fascinating. Please look up Lola Montez, oh my God. Um, She was a famously seductive performer and courtesan in the 1800s. She had been born uh, an Irish, I mean, she was Irish and born Eliza Gilbert. Uh, but she fashioned herself as Lola Montez, the Spanish dancer, and then she ended up uh, becoming a courtesan. She had affairs with very many famous and notable men of the time. Um, she became mistress of the King of King Ludwig of Bavaria, who made her a countess. But uh, Bavaria hated her. She ended up going to America, having a whole. Um, or there basically reinventing herself and then she died of syphilis at 39 but she was very famous and famously very seductive and one of the things that i find really really fascinating is that this is not a show that you would think was l- rooted in any sort of reality obviously it's like the devil making a bargain with this ball player but there are these weird moments where the show has parallels with actual people like Shoeless Joe Hardy of Hannibal Missouri is is kind of a reference to Shoeless Joe Jackson who is a famous baseball player um which was a surprise when I learned of like well, you know it's like there's all these weird moments where it's like oh okay funny and so the fact that Lola the character in this show is named Lola and that she is presumably not a real Latina, but she's pretending to be most Senorita Lolita Chiquita, you know, banana. Um, This like absurd, complete, false Latina identity is something that the real Lola Montez also, also did. So it's kind of this strange, like, they are referencing real stories in this very unreal story, which is truly interesting anyway so that is to say this phrase might have been a known phrase to the audience of the show and, and might have been something that already um gave impressions of this woman who was was known to be this immense you know seductress who was uh irresistible and also by the way lola montez must, must have been an inspiration for um, Madame Armfelt in A Little Night Music as well. Must have been, right? She starts out as a sort of like humble beginnings and becomes a countess. I don't know. I mean, I, she wouldn't have been the only one in that, in that kind of story, but like must have been one of them. Anyway, so fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. So um, let us get into the song.
2: Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you.
1: Okay, so right at the top, we get the slow, low Bolero music with drums to begin. Um, It's appropriate for the vaguely Latina character. She's pretending to be this kind of Spanish flair. But also perfect for a sinister seductress. This is sexy kind of dancing, this dance music. Uh, tango, all of these different styles. You have to lean into this kind of music. It's uh, pressing bodies up against each other. Like It, it makes sense that this is the, the musical language that Lola would use for this seduction. Even aside from the fact that she's has this identity. Um, but it's also a little bit dark. We can hear right away that Lola is not working on the side of heaven, shall we say? Um, and we get this introduction of this phrase, which, as I said, is um an interesting one given its history, but it's also interesting because of the scene right before it, uh, in which Lola is much more coquettish. This isn't flirtation, this (laughs) song we can tell. She's not flirting. She sounds like an animal predator who has Joe in her sights as her prey. That is kind of the tone of this entire song is this kind of like the hunt, but there's something about it too, that it's, it's not a, it's not a hunt. Really. It's not like a, it's not a hunt that is a fair fight. Let's just say this is, this is a master. This is an alpha who's coming after someone that she feels, this is like a a sick little baby Buffalo being taken in by a lion at the, at the peak of her powers. Like this is, This is not going to be a fight in this music. And of course, you can hear that in the music in this part that we just played, because I love that the music kind of like the melody line keeps stepping down a little bit. It keeps getting lower and lower. So it kind of gives you this sense that she's getting closer and closer and it ends on little Lola wants you. Um, Which could be something that, you know, could be a surprise, could be a reveal, but it's not. It's just like an inevitability. It's just the end of that particular line. And then we get this little flourish, like, yep, it's going to happen. You know, she's called
2: that into being. Make up your mind to have no regrets. Recline yourself, resign yourself, you're through.
1: This is such fascinating language. Make up your mind to have no regrets. It's really not a seduction, right? She's treating it like it's a done deal. She's just telling him like, don't even pretend like you can possibly resist me. We are clearly going to have an affair. We're clearly going to have sex. And so all you need to do is just have this in your brain that you're you're not going to regret it, right? Like get all that stuff out of your brain because it's happening. And so it's an interesting portrait of Lola. We know she's confident about her ability to seduce anyone, but the song indicates a little bit why she fails. She's a little bit overconfident. She's almost skipping past the actual seduction to tell Joe how to think about the tryst that they're going to have. You know, it's, it's a little bit presumptuous I'd say, especially given what we will learn about Joe and what kind of person Joe is. It's This is not going to be as effective on him as it is on for other men. Um, but I also kind of love that this is her tactic. She is an immensely powerful immortal being. In some ways it would be disappointing if her song were more like the scene before it and she was playing it being a cute girl with a crush on Joe. Um, it would feel kind of beneath her somehow. So it's kind of interesting to me that the scene before it has her trying these different things. And, and granted, like she's, she's coming on hard in that scene. It's not like she's not trying to seduce him through a few different tactics right after another so it's it's not she's not totally playing like oh the innocent little girly and luring him with this kind of other thing um but it's not what you would expect the scene to be before this particular song and this is not the song that you would expect to follow that scene necessarily because it's a little bit different persona right um She's playing lots of flirtatious cards in that scene. She's pretending to be silly, pretending to be naughty, giggling. And then the song is like pure power and domination. And usually when you have a mismatch in scene and song like that, it kind of feels disjointed. But I think the combination here shows us something interesting about Lola. She's been doing this too long. It's kind of become too easy for her. You know, the ridiculousness of her flipping through all those various tactics in the scene and then singing this song it's kind of like yeah 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 whatever I'll, you know here's here's all the different stuff I'm gonna do and then she gets into the song which is the kind of the real her to be like look this is happening <laughs> you know like I kn- I know who I am I know what I can do like don't even don't even bother like she is very seductive she is very sexy that is who she is but this is just a statement of a of a victory that hasn't happened yet because she's so confident that she's going to have this victory so in some ways that sort of disjointedness of like she's a flirt she's a she's a girl she's a fan club oh she's so naughty like what would the coach say you know and now this kind of like nope you know she is she is a predator with him in her sights. song is giving us a sense of that that she she isn't quite approaching this in the way that would be the actual way to get (laughs) joe um because she's just doesn't have to anymore for the most part i
2: always get what i aim for and your heart and soul is what i came for whatever love fight don't you know you can't win you're no exception to the rule i'm irresistible you fool give in give in give in all right so
1: then she has a little moment when uh in this kind of bridge of the song where she almost forgets the seductive part I, when she says I always get what I came for and the when I, I always get what I aim for and your heart and soul is what I came for uh that music kind of relaxes a little bit it's like she's forgotten the seductive part and it becomes more of a celebration of her own power and of course we get Uh, heart and soul this mention of like she's come for his heart and soul which is really Applegate's language and a reminder of what she's doing here um and I think it's it fits that it's the kind of biggest moment for her it's a big note to sing these are the true stakes but then after this moment of kind of relaxing back into the like I always I always get it you know this is what I came for and this is what's going to happen um we go back into the more seduction seductive sound but the language is all about winning and defeat. You know, don't, you know, you can't win. Um, uh, I'm irresistible. You're a fool. Like you're no exception to the rule. It's kind of, it's like almost a little bit offensive, you know, cause she's kind of saying like, yeah, everybody gives in to me. Like you're a fool if you think you can't. Um, and it's, it's not at all sort of like, I mean, it, she's kind of just dominating him a little bit. Um, which is not, not seductive. I'm, I'm not going to say it's not, but it's kind of an interesting, like an interesting tactic. And I love that the line is, uh, don't you know, you can't win because it does feel like it is a reminder of what the, the central premise of this show is, you know, which is the idea that the Washington senators cannot win. They are losers. And then Joe is the one who allows them to be able to win by making this bargain. So when, um, Lola is saying, like, don't you know you can't win? Uh, And I'm not sure, this might be a little more, this might be a little over analytical, but I do think there's a little bit of a hint of like, oh, you know, like, this is not a show that says people cannot win. Like, this is a show that says if you have hearts, you can win, potentially. Like, you can... Something can happen that can change your, your stakes. So I think that when Lola says, Don't you know you can't win? It's a little bit of a reminder of that and an indication that she's going to fail um, in this seduction. And then, of course, we get at the end the sort of probably most like sexy, sexy moment in this song the repeated give in with this kind of rhythmic heartbeat. Uh, it really musically illustrates that moment so beautifully because she's she's like a snake moving in for the kill with this soft repeated phrase. Like she's like hypnotizing him kind of. And the heartbeat is him being sort of mesmerized by all of this. You can feel that kind of sense of like, oh God, this is like, she's actually getting closer. She, this is actually the moment where she's saying like, give in, just give in.
2: Hello, Joe. It's me. He hit so far. Hold on, that's you. boop, boop
1: course we cannot talk about the song as a seduction without talking about dance because it it is a dance number this is a big fun sexy dance number so the lyrics are not the only tool that Lola is using here we have um, this amazing brassy sexy dance break for her to do some Fosse choreography in an attempt to convince him and the music kind of matches the choreography in that it's sometimes very conventionally seductive but also sometimes very quirky and odd. If you look at this for Fosse choreography, um, there's a lot of moments in there that that are not what you would expect uh, like a woman being sexy and seducing a man to, to use. I mean, she does this weird thing where like she kind of puts her elbows together and like shimmies forward. You know, she's squishing out of her shoe, her dress, her pants at that point on the, on the ground with her like feet up in the air. Like it's kind of a weird like, you know, she's rolling her ankle. It's these interesting, odd moments that are very sexy and appealing because obviously Gwen Verdon is very sexy and appealing, but they're also kind of quirky and bizarre. And I love that that is in here because it's so much more interesting than just having a conventionally sexy dance and a conventionally sexy song because Lola is a seductress who is actually most appealing, not because she's hot and sexy, but because she's completely unique. Like you're just kind of drawn to her because it's not usual. In the same way that I think you're drawn to her in this song, not because of the sexiness of it, but because she's so enjoying her own power, her own sexiness. Um, It's a different it's a slightly different thing. And I think that's really helps the longevity of this song and the fame of this moment. And of course, I think it's fitting that by the end of this dance break, she's standing in her kind of power pose with her legs out and her hands on her hips, uh, which is from the poster, as we as we've said. Um, And she's singing that she always gets what she aims for big notes. You know, this is really not about him. This is about her celebrating herself and it's great.
2: Lola wants, Lola gets. You'll never win. I'm irresistible, you fool. Give in, give in. So I love
1: that in the end of this song, she stops singing entire phrases. Like now she's so sure she's got him in the bag. She doesn't even need the argument anymore. Right. It's like, she sung the song. She did the dance. Like, come on. She's just like, just here's throwing in some, some moments to remind him that like she's irresistible, you know? Um, And then it ends on give in, but it's not as intimate this time. It's not quite that same repeated, like snake, you know, cobra hypnotism it's about it's about bigger and she's got it's a lot bigger and she's got these like brass instruments more drums like the orchestra is now like assisting like the doors of hell have opened right like they are on her side her demons have come to help him to just go where she wants him to go because it's it's such a done deal um and of course it's not a done deal but uh what a great song to to have Joe have to respond to it's really a fun number, and I see why it's so famous.
0: And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria?
2: How do you solve a problem
0: like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with Dam Yankees, both internally and externally. So this, for me is a show as we've as we've mentioned, it definitely creaks with age. Um, and parts of the score are really great. Parts weirdly are very operatic in tone. Um, that like it just seems very disjointed to me and that may in some ways it's just conventions of the time right like it's it's partially just how people sang and what the what was considered like mainstream and normal and I don't know that that's the way it necessarily has to be Um, because I do think that there is a lot of potential within this story and score and and there are lots of bops and and solid funny kind of bits and jokes and like it does have a the faustian element is certainly like you know keeps it rooted in like a story tradition right it's like Mm -hmm. it's familiar and feels good in a way just to kind of it's like oh well you understand what the givens of the of the world are and 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 certainly fun characters and and lots with that um and also like and the original version like a time capsule of 1955 you know, housewifery and, <laughs> um, you know, like what it is, what the gender roles of, of 1955 were, and definitely like lampooning them on a certain level, both the, the guy who you're blind up, you're blind up, you know, like, and every, every stereotypical dad who, who yells at the TV, um, with a sports game on, which is definitely the culture that I am from. Um, so I, I, in many ways, I feel like I know many of these people, but I guess, my question, because and I I liked what you said in earlier segments about some of the things that like feel like obvious changes or notes that would actually make the show, I think, more produced and more classic or more considered classic than it is. Um, so I, I kind of want to hear you talk about like that because, you know, the show so well. I was like, I, and as we were talking earlier, I was like, oh, yeah, can't we just do that version? Like, can't someone just do that version? Because it does feel like it's a shake you know a, a shakes like it's just a step away from being really 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 excellent
1: yeah I totally agree it's definitely one that I like there are definitely shows where I'm like you know what like I I do and then this is one too I I love the show as it is it's like a weird old show show in many many ways but I also like definitely have the dramaturgical thing that happens sometimes where I'm like let me at it coach you know um but i feel like first of all there's so many characters in this show
0: yes it's hard to I, keep them all straight
1: it is honest. hard to keep them all straight and there's definitely some where i'm like like there's the team owner and the coach you know like there's a bunch of players like in addition to the three iconic players who i love the smoky um rocky and sohovic um there's a sister and then there's also doris like there's like two friends of meg um and and so i feel like there's a little bit of like and then there's gloria you know the reporter like there's just a lot and in addition to having a lot of characters you also have just stuff like we talked about with this like whole bizarre fan rally at the end of act 1 which is strange it's a strange way to spend a bunch of time in this plot because when you're talking about the basic premise of this plot you know again faustian bargain deal with the devil um the 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 rules of those always need to be very well defined. And the rule of this one is not particularly well defined because the loophole that Joe asks for and gets is kind of a basic, like, there's no tricks about it. It's just like he can just decide to back out on the deal except for it's the night before the game that he would need to win. So, okay, so we got some stuff going on there but he can win before that game. So th- so it's not like he's going to necessarily be needed to win if you know like like there's there's kind of room on on the sides of these things very easily. So it's not like he has to figure out how to get out of this bargain. Um and as I said like he that, that is an another thing that I think is kind of a strange about this plot is that he he is seduced by literally the sexiest woman in the history of space and time. Basically, like Lola is the sexiest person who has seduced everybody. You know that they're like she is irresistible, and then he resists her immediately. You yeah, know? like he doesn't say anything in that number. Like he basically like she finishes the number, and he's like, "No, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> like he fucking
0: leaves." I'm married. You, know? you were married to me. Like you'd want me home too. It's yeah. like, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. They don't even like, they do. And I, and I know from having worked on the show that that is sometimes difficult for those actors to play because, because you have like, you know, it feels like you need a moment where he's just like, Oh my God, like, I want to do this so badly. Like, but, but he's always like, they don't seem to be willing to make young joe uh tempted or stray from from this kind of virtuous path but old joe who is himself was very happy to kind of like not consider meg and not you know like he he was very thoughtless as an older man and not necessarily in a sexual way um and then immediately becomes like the most thoughtful human being in the planet, even though he's in the body of a young hot man and like now has literally the sexiest woman in the whole wide world trying to seduce him. So, um, so there's basically like, that is all to say, what I think is kind of interesting about this is they have some story tropes that could just play themselves out according to the lines of the usual, you know, how does he figure, how does he get out of this bargain he's made with the devil? um he's t- he he's torn between this like incredible sexy sexy woman and a life as a young hot man who's famous and everybody loves him and this kind of blah life as an old man who cannot physically do what he wants to do in a marriage that is not exciting to him anymore you know like there's tension in that except for they don't decide to kind of activate that tension and so as a result the tension is all in plot stuff rather than in character stuff, because the characters kind of like stick to one thing from the get go. You know, Joe basically learns his lesson almost immediately um, because he's almost immediately committed to being loyal to Meg and going back to that life. Um, You know, and then again, as I said, like the, the Meg thing is a kind of interesting too. like this hot young man who is spending uh, being really attentive, attentive to her. And like, Uh, seeing her in a way that clearly old Joe never really saw her. Like their problem was that they, she just was totally ignored by him all the time. Like there doesn't seem to be any kind of tension on her part about being drawn to him. You know, the, the show is very for a show that is very, in many ways, like lusty and sexual, um because you have that whole number about like i thought about the game of all the ball players being like oh my god like i had this woman and i was gonna you know do her and then like i'm not gonna do her because i thought about the game and like it's it's a kind of like there was nothing like a dame sort of feeling to it Uh so the show is like very sexual on some levels but also deeply kind of afraid of sex (laughs) in many ways because none of the characters who actually it feels like uh, should have that kind of like sexual draw to these other characters have any exhi- Have any exhibiting of that temptation, that particular kind of temptation. It, it, they seem to be like the heart wins very easily over the loins in this show in a way that I think does not ultimately help the show. Um, And then, you know, it's just, it kind of is so weird with the like Shifty McCoy part of it, which is also, I love that there was like a person named Shifty McCoy in this world. You know, in this whole like weird like everybody immediately believing that he was Joe and like Applegate sort of has something to do with that, but also not really beyond saying like he was Shifty McCoy. Like it feels like you could do another you you could make that stronger too, where it's like does Applegate just basically like create this shared like history that like what, basically what are Applegate's powers? Because that, that itself is also very unclear too. He can like make Joe throw a long ball. He can do stuff with like immediately with his hands, but then it seems like he's also reliant on other people doing stuff for him. And, you know, hinting to Gloria that she should go investigate this, which she of course does in 30 seconds. Um, It seems to be enough when you'd think that, like, if he really wanted to mess with things, he would make it so that 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 history existed, that Joe does look like exactly like this picture of Shifty McCoy. Like, he can do that. He's the devil. Like, what can he not do? Um, And I also love the detail when Lola is like, I put pills in his drink and I'm like, you can drug the devil (laughs) like the devil sleeps well like all of these things where you're a little bit like wait what what world are we what are the what are the rules yeah, here
0: what are the rules like and 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 even like the concept of Applegate like the original like and the original performance is very like sinister devil it's not like oh mischievous little like he <laughs> like yeah. I it's and so it's just, there are so many peculiar things about it
1: yeah there really are I mean at the same time it's like it's so funny that, you know, the show kind of tells you like, don't take this all that seriously. This isn't really like brain surgery here. And you're tap you're you're happy to go on that journey because the journey is fun. Um so it does kind of allow you to not worry too much about all the many plot holes. But I do wish that it was a little clearer just what that plot was and you know what the stakes were. And allowed you to feel a little bit more you know the tension of is joe gonna make it back like because then he's also like distracted and that's why he doesn't get to go to the you know like there's like it's very very weird that final sort of hearing scene because you just don't under there's no moment where it's like yes he has to do this and then he's gonna go back and he can't get to the shell or he can't get to the magic thing or whatever you know whatever it is it's like he just is sort of not able to leave the room with Applegate and that's enough for him to be like trapped for eternity as young Joe basically like you, you they just need to more clearly define the rules on a few different things um to make you feel clearer about the tension of what you're watching like what are the dramatic stakes exactly like what is that central question um and then adjust levels of things accordingly you know and have more to do for some of these characters i mean lola has nothing to do as soon as basically joe is like you know the end yeah I, i'm not gonna sleep with you she and the fact that she's like the head of his fan club is like a little uh you know like you can feel them bringing
0: to in a weird way it's like it's, yeah, yeah it's because like he's a so, nice loyal guy yeah he's so nice and loyal like how can you not love him kind of thing i guess Yeah.
1: Which which is kind of funny, because like, and I I think this is where my sort of like twenty twenty three uh, feminist brain kicks in too, where it's like, I do think that the show is a lot less problematic than some other shows of the time. but like it does kind of irk me a little bit, that part of it that like you know, Joe has just left Meg um
0: to pursue the dream of, you know, like, yeah, it is kind of a weird thing.
1: Yeah. And then he comes back and is sort of like, never asked me where I was. And she's like, okay. You know, it's like she doesn't get to have the same kind of emotional journey that he does. Like she starts out being frustrated in him with him for constantly ignoring her in favor of baseball. And then she misses him when he's gone, but there's no, she like, doesn't even really get to get angry with him. You know, like I, I, but even like her character could use, a little bit more in the same way that i feel like lola could where it's like lola falling in love with him just because he's a nice guy who's loyal to his wife feels a little bit like oh there's more to be mined here um that the show just isn't really all that interested in in giving and you know so which is why it's kind of frustrating when the real as much as i love who's got the pain and that whole like weird sequence i'm a little bit like you know we could use this space and time for some story stuff.
0: Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, it just, the way they, cho- the way they choose to spend time is very peculiar. And I think probably a product of like the George Abbott musical comedy of it all. Right. Like yeah. it was, it is very much rooted in that, in that tradition. And because you're right. Like there is a much more interesting version of this because, you know, but also to your point, like they don't get that emotional journey. Those two, those two women don't get that emotional journey, but yeah, really kind of neither does Joe. Like, it's like, he says goodbye. And then it's like, Oh, okay. I'm a success. Like there's not yeah. really any like, Oh, but I miss her. Like there's never actually a drilling down of right. a, more feeling about anyone. It just is kind of like, here are all these interesting pieces that we don't, really then yeah. a ton with like in some ways right. the most interesting i wish there were more of an like adler and ross like catalog to like go back to and say like okay what is there a revised version of this show that actually does these things explores it just that little bit more it's not that it needs to become like deep and complex and all these things but just like enough rooted in the characters and in the situation that there is more tension, there is more like thing, and then like we don't know what he's gonna do about the pennant and the game and like, you know, whatever. Like it it does become and maybe he does like I don't know that he sleeps with Lola, but maybe there is that moment between Meg and young Joe that's like, oh, I like the some like things that are not necessarily like unexplored in musical theater. Like it's it's yeah. not these things aren't somewhat conventional or haven't been looked at made fun of joked like whatever like situations it's like oh it's just like one step more like you just needed to go like one step more and then do some other things
1: yeah i mean just allow characters to have more of a journey rather than like just having one main character trait that just plays out over the whole show you know And and it's funny because like there are the anchor points sometimes but then it then it kind of feels weird like I don't know like like when Joe in the original when Joe sings who Two lost souls with Lola and is like making out with her because he's like oh well I guess I'm damned and you're like what this this we never even saw this part of you that was interested in this you know like yeah they they basically could could use a little well, a little bit of tweaking to allow each character to kind of deepen a little bit and
0: um, and because they're also off- as a group not sorry I'm interrupted I interrupt you but No, go for it. They, as a group of writers and creatives, are not incapable. Like the pajama game, like, does have some depth of character, yeah. and at least, like, people are going on emotional journeys. The songs are doing work there. Like, it's not, it, it is not, um, yeah. I think pajama game gets like looked over as a lovely, like, little gem of the canon in some ways. Um, but there is some depth and some, like, just a little bit of something that, like, makes it. Interesting to continue to watch the it all play out, kind of thing. Even though it is a musical comedy, like there's just enough. Yeah. Like, I wish that this just had that. And it what is sad to me is like it seems like the rights holders and or like the estates or whatever are really not interested in that. And I don't know if that's because the Joe D. pietro version is so different that like they're now like scarred. I mean, I didn't realize that that like Red Sox version they don't do they don't do who's got the pain, who's the got the pain is gone
1: oh that's interesting
0: which what I was like know? oh god this is like in some ways I'm like did you go the like the other did you swing too far the other direction now I, like kind of want to read that version because I'm like wait what the yeah. hell what the hell was it like eh.
1: I know and it's so funny to me because of, of all the things to change in the show the one thing I do not feel like needs to change at all is the identity of the sports of the baseball team right <laughs> it's like, like that's the it's main fine. change
0: like, I don't yeah. really care. I'm not that invested. I mean, sure, it, like, raises the stakes, I guess, for it to be the Red Sox. Right. Who would never want, like, sure, it raises the stakes. But, like, I don't, that's not the, those aren't the stakes I'm Those aren't the stakes we need. Like, I'm not, I'm not questioning those stakes. Like, that's not, yeah. like, that's not really what it's about. Like, so yeah. it's a peculiar thing. And let's, uh, while we're here, like, do, should we talk about the who's got the pain of it all? And just, like, yeah, it is a complete convention of musical theater that they also do the exact same thing with the pajama game right like mm-hmm. oh we're suddenly at this like thing fundraiser event rally and we're gonna do a musical number it's steam heat it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot um but it's fun and it's great and like that's how i feel about who's got the pain i'm like i actually don't care that it has nothing to do with it yeah <laughs> George be damned. I love this song. <laughs> and like I love this like bit. Like it's so catchy and dumb and stupid, but like I love it.
1: I mean, yeah, it it like again, the show kind of allows you to to turn off that part of your brain that questions it. And I think also like when when we talk about George Abbott's style of like kind of rapid fire, like that helps in this. It it clips along so fast the show like it's like on page four, basically, that Joe has made this deal and has turned into young Joe. Um, and I think that really does help that it's like we're not you're not sitting anywhere long enough to kind of be like, wait, I don't really understand what is happening here. Because it's like as soon as you're like, wait, what? The hearing's not going to be a 10. You're like zipping along to the next thing, you know. Yeah. And um, that that kind of helps you not not notice really some of the plot holes and some of the things that you're like wait i don't get what that is and totally accept something like who's got the Paint, where you're kind of like what oh we're doing this number now
0: Fun. right it's such an interesting and then it also has like you know it also has a little bit like the oliver school of quick wrap-ups where like yeah really a wrap-ups where it's like oh just talk to me about how much you love me and then i'll ignore the devil and like and he'll just kind of the, and then he'll melt away and the show is over it's like it it it's just an odd like I mean it's the conventions of the time but it's yeah it's such an interesting like yeah I almost want to call the show like a relic and I and I don't Mm -hmm. needs to be but like it is like a such a product of its time
1: it is definitely a product of its time but but it also like I mean the weird thing about all this is as much as I have all these issues with it 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 does kind of work you know and I I think also like the fact that it is a story trope like that, like, you know, selling your soul to the devil, like, the immortal seductress, who, I keep thinking of her as immortal, but then, like, she has a line about how she's, like, 175 years old, and you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, that's not, it's not all that, you know, like, I guess she just is, like, one, the next in line. Um, Although it's funny, when you were saying about, like, her originally turning back into, like, an old hag witch, I'm like, oh, is there a world in which, like, this is the witch from into the woods <laughs>
0: like, it's a shared universe <laughs> yeah or like god some can you imagine the bad like prologue of like her meeting the devil in 1780 whatever and being like make me pretty and then like then we got to like those Sam yankees got it out again like <laughs> <laughs> like i you know the bad school of like mm, yeah ben Hove, damn
1: yankee oh my god
0: the, or the daniel fish jam yankees i guess maybe but the it's just it's so it's an interesting one like i i've not done it i think it'd be fun to do but i would want to like tinker with it and it seems like that they're not open to that which is yeah just, you know yeah i
1: well. mean yeah i think i think it depends like i think you i think it asks a lot of like a director and performers because i think you have to find ways to get that nuance in there just not necessarily in the text um
0: and of course we have also not talked about the chiquita lolita banana of it all oh yeah a tough a tough look in the year of our lord 2023 or really at any time we're just now actually openly talking about it but yeah it's like it's a little tough it's tough
1: a little tough although it's also like so it's like presented as so silly like i don't think i think it's actually kind of worse when when um
0: you You're, try to, like, you try to address it and or, like...
1: Well, make- when the show thinks that they are trying to portray a realistic experience... Right. And I feel like all of... I, I could make the argument that, like, within this show, like, Applegate, this is, like, it's kind of a, like, seat of his pants, sort of like, ah, I don't know, uh, Lola Ch- Chiquita Banana. You know, he just, like, throws in some... And then it's, like, Miss West Indies, which is, like, a completely different, like, thing than... You know, it's like it's sort of like they're all these like weird kind of like, ah, ah, you're I don't know, you're I guess you're like uh, this now, you know, so it's kind of like it it is the only the barest, most stereotypical like identity for her, but it's n- still not a good look. I would hope that they would kind of let you futz with that a little bit because it isn't it isn't great. And she could be anything. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like yeah, her identity could be any number of different things.
0: And that will bring us to our favorite things. These
2: are a few of my favorite
0: things where we talk about some of our favorite things about damn Yankees. So who is your favorite character in damn Yankees, Annika?
1: I mean, Applegate. It has to be Applegate for me. I love him. He's so funny, like, and so charming. And I just always feel like I have to love it. Although uh, act like a, honorable mention goes to those three ball players because i just love them and like i mean i'm biased to to the encores where those three guys were so perfect together and also great um i just i wish there were a little bit more of them i wish they kind of had more of a presence throughout the show but uh yeah no applegate takes it for me i just always
0: wanted him to be on stage it's so interesting because i he i have a I have like problems with him because I'm like, I'm not sure if he's really supposed to be funny or sinister or both. Like it doesn't, I, in some ways it's like, I, I, because I think I haven't seen, I don't have like the same reference points. Like it, it's more like murky for me, but I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised by that, I guess is, but uh, so my favorite, I I have to give it to Lola. Cause like, she's fun. She's silly. I'm into it. Like it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a star turn in a featured role. Like I, I'm like, I think that's like, uh, that's, I can, I can get into that. So I think, I think for me, it, it has to be, it has to be Lola. But what is your favorite song in the score of Damn Yankees?
1: I mean, this is a tough one because I really love a lot of the songs in this show, but there is one that I kind of feel like stands out and is just kind of unexpected, so charming and delightful. I just always love it and that is
0: heart i was hoping you were going to say that because we haven't talked about it at all and it is like one of the songs that i think is most recognizable to people outside the show it's not my answer but i'm glad you said it because it is a it is a lovely little tune
1: yeah it is and the fact that like i don't think you expect like baseball players to be singing in kind of tight harmony with such beautiful voices those would like there's something sort of charming about, it. and they're also kind of like, it's such a sweet kind of vulnerable song about like, oh, we're not going to win. We just got to do better, you know, Um that I it just always kind of is surprising to me. And I, I, I know, I understand why it's gotten such, uh why it has such longevity. Also, because I just feel like we underestimate how much people love tight
0: harmonies. <laughs> it's true. We do. I mean, that is, that is very true. And we, I mean, Go listen to our Music Man episode to hear more about tight harmonies. But, like, yeah, it's true. Tight harmonies yeah. are great.
1: Barbershop quartets, man.
0: Huge. Huge for the team. Yeah. Um, so what for, about you? Well, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to say Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Interesting. Because um, I really like that song. It get, actually gets stuck in my head more than I, like, I, I sing it to myself, actually, quite frequently. Like, the, the hook of that song. The Shoeless Joe from Hannibal. No, like, I actually think about that a lot. Um, and I don't think it's because of my growing up in proximity somewhat to Hannibal, Missouri, just by nature of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't think it's that. I just, it's always like the internal rhyme, the Shoeless Joe Jackson of it all. Like, my dad is a big, my family is a pretty big baseball family, big sports family. But so I, I think it has like, it probably has a mixture of those things, but I really like, it's a, it's a really like, it's a fun number. It's a catchy little tune. And the other like follow-up here, the it to me lives in the same category that I actually kind of forgot about the tune until I was like reading it and listening and doing the read listen is the game.
1: Yeah.
0: I thought about the game, the game, the game. And I was like, Oh wow. That's actually like, I don't, I didn't realize how much I actually had like digested that song or how much I like held like know it even though I don't know the show and I don't listen to the album like oh yeah I definitely know that song like why couldn't tell you yeah. it's very formulaic in a lot of ways but I, I was like okay alright the game
1: yeah that one's true although that one I do feel is a little bit like on the like ooh like more of the old fashioned when they're talking about like the way they're talking about the women.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I, just in terms of the tune, I was like, oh, oh, I like I was like, I completely forgot that this is it. Like, oh yeah, this is a song.
1: <laughs> it is it is very catchy. It is very catchy. And Lola's songs are both
0: really fun too. They of were sort course. of
1: rollers roll, you know,
0: runners up for me. So what is your favorite miscellaneous thing about um since you already gave us one in the in the intro, what's your other miscellaneous favorite thing about Tam Yankees?
1: Well, this is a very specific one, but when I saw The Revival in 1994, um, I was nine years old, um, and I remember parts of that show pretty well, Uh, and one of the things that I remember being so struck by was a moment, and you know I love costume dramaturgy, Mm -hmm. um, it was the costume dramaturgy of that, Uh, I actually, I should have looked up who designed those costumes, but all of Victor Garber's costumes as Applegate had some element of red to them, but they were all subtle. It was like a suit with red pinstripes. Um, At one point, like a red pocket square and red socks. Like there was just something about it that he had uh, a little bit of red. And then when he finally did his, uh, those, those are the good old days number when he kind of embraces his full devil form he put on a red suit it was a finally a fully red suit and i just thought that was so cool because it was such a fun way to kind of hint at who he really is um and totally in keeping with the kind of style of the show i think so that is what i will give it to that that costume drama that costume dramaturgy moment in the revival of that show what about you
0: So I, this is where, like, we've already talked about this a little bit, and in some ways it could have been my favorite song, but I'm giving my miscellaneous favorite thing to Who's Got the Pain and the of Who's Got the Pain. I desperately, so uh, I'm close with uh, Lainey Sakakura, who is in the Fosse kind of, like, family of... Helped reconstruct things for Fosse and whatnot, and I always joke with her. I'm like, "Well, you just teach me who's got the pain. Like, I want to be able to dance. Who's got the pain?
2: Not (laughs) a dancer.
0: I'm not a like, but I'm like, I I sing that song all the time to myself. I think it is so. It's the song itself is catchy, but I love the the Fosseyography of it all, and it's like weird, peculiar, yeah, thing. And it's it's that it's like starting to develop. It's the steam heat thing, but it's like he's starting to develop his like specific style and yet he's still like very much in musical comedy like form and so i just i think the combination of all those things i like i love who's got the pain so that i think is just generally as a complete thing it is my favorite miscellaneous thing
1: yeah i love that yeah it's the choreography in this in this show is really really fascinating like the one that always gets me is whatever lola wants because when that number starts and it's that just that slow sexy vamp If you look at what she's doing, like like, you think about like a sexy woman seducing someone and like the moves that you might do. And the first move that she has is to like, like twist her ankle. Like she like turns her ankle in a way in a, in a kind of weird like role. And it's, I'm like, what an interesting, unusual start to like. A seduction it's just not at all the body part you would expect not at all the movement you would expect um yeah so interesting
0: I yeah I just I, their his whole like style and evolution and everything I'm I'm very into and that will bring us to our penultimate segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So I, you know, for me, it is the, it is a defining musical comedy. It is, like I said, a product of its era and like a, a very unique like little sports musical that, that works and has broad access, like accessibility to people. I think people it's one of those that like, guys aren't afraid of and it's not just because of the community theater story but i think there is i think it is a lovely a lovely little gem that the weird and i and obviously we wish that there were things that we could do and change and make it better um but i think it is like a it is a lovely like encapsulation of george abbott and george abbott's career as well and like what he gave to theater slash slash musical theater and then of course who's to say like you know what would have happened if adler if ross had not died and like adler and ross got to continue to do, to do shows what they might have given us um so but what what about you anika like what do you think is this show's place
1: yeah i mean i'm glad you brought up the the sports of it all because i do feel like this is the show that probably most successfully um embraces sports in a way and like kind of draws a, a really beautiful parallel between um the love of a game, you know, like I, I feel like it doesn't it doesn't treat sports as a sort of like weird separate thing from the universe of musical theater, which usually you don't see a ton of like uh sport showing up in shows in any meaningful way. And I think this one really kind of does embrace that in in some ways. Um and yeah, I mean I think I think it's I think it's everything you said. I, I don't think that this show is like particularly influential or game changing in terms of its content or form. Um, I think it gives us uh, some really good songs. I think it gives us, you know, obviously Fosse and Gwen Verdon um, and George Abbott. Like, I think it's a good example of a lot of stuff and just kind of a fun um, golden age musical uh, that gets uh, real weird at some point.
0: (laughs) yeah the like is but I think it's instructive about like what the the mainstream of the genre was at that time. like we spend so much time talking about like the best, the, yeah, you know, the best and the brightest and the perfect and the ones that are like, you know, I don't want to say universal but timeless or at least like remain like really well constructed, well written, like doesn't feel old in the same way or like doesn't have like the things that kind of transcend the genre in a weird way. And yeah, I think this is like a wonderful example of like what most of the things that would have been playing Broadway in 1955 were like.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think so too.
0: So that wraps up our deep dive into Damn Yankees. But before we go, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Anika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be getting to know?
1: All right, so here is the clue for the next show. The set of this show featured live trees, actual trees on the set, which continue to grow over the run of the show a little bit and sprout some leaves.
0: Which is like wild to me. And because of certain things about this show, I'm like, how did how was that maintained? Yeah. Full disclosure, like we talk about the show, we you know, like I I, I'm not authentically reacting Actually, right now, I'm still like just my mind is blown by this fact.
1: Yeah, well, I will say I don't think it was their intention that the that the trees would continue to grow necessarily. It was from what I've read, there was a feeling that because the show dealt with some very raw emotions and real things that they wanted the the trees to feel as real as possible. So they they were cut down. They weren't like living in, you know, dirt or anything, but it they sprouted some leaves, which is kind of a beautiful metaphor for something that the show is about.
0: Absolutely. Also funny when you think about the other shows that were on Broadway that season and uh some of the rivalries that exist. I just there's another additional clue, I guess. But anyway, yep. we'll see you next time. Bye everyone.
1: Bye everyone. <laughs>